watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gagnon. Nadir Token from 27.4 Asset Management in studio to guide us through all that's happening on global markets. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Vemer Ferreira from Stanlib to discuss their latest global offshore offering. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Lafarge Wholesome has reported a fourth quarter net loss of $3.3 billion, largely due to a multi-billion dollar impairment on operations in countries including Algeria, Malaysia, Iraq and Brazil. The world's biggest cement maker has set out a five-year turnaround plan under which it aims to grow faster than the overall market. It's also halting its share buyback program. In the advertising space, WPP reported its worst results since the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis due to increased competition and a slump in spending from some of the largest consumer groups. A flat outlook for sales and revenue this year sent its shares on a downward spiral, wiping £2.3 billion off their value. The advertising company has cut its sales outlook three times since major consumer goods client Unilever cut spending. And music streaming service Spotify has filed for a direct listing of its shares, laying out financial data for the first time that cheered some analysts, but led others to question how it can turn a profit from its growing subscriber base. Here's more on that. The world's biggest music streaming service is now hoping to turn a profit. Spotify's move to start trading its shares publicly on the New York Stock Exchange. According to Reuters calculations, it's valued at roughly $19 billion. Launched in 2008 and available in more than 60 countries, it's hoping to fend off competition from Apple, Amazon and Google. And is dreaming big, comparing its aspirations to the reach of Facebook and YouTube. With 71 million premium subscribers globally, Spotify has about twice as many paying customers as music streaming runner-up Apple. Laying out detailed financial data for the first time, the company's paperwork showed rising revenue and relatively steady operating costs. Some analysts, however, question how it will turn its success into cash. The complexity of around royalties is a huge issue in this business. Underpaying or overpaying royalties due to record labels, music publishers or copyrights demands make it an extremely challenging situation. By going head-to-head -head against Apple & Co, it's competing against companies that don't need to profit on music as a standalone business. Well, Nadir Token from 27.4 joining me in studio. Well, let's start with Spotify listing its shares because it's not it's not an IPO, it's not no. raising capital, it no. just wants to list its shares. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a typical way for the founding shareholders to offload a big chunk of their stake and in the process monetize some of that value. I mean, obviously, tech has gone through a massive purple patch in terms of, um, you know, the kind of valuations we're seeing these companies at. You know, every single time there's a new industry which seems to be uh, dominating the headlines. We're talking about a new normal, you know. Uh, resource companies were in a new normal in 2007 until, guess what, they weren't. Um, you know, so tech companies seem to be finding themselves in a similar space at the moment you know at the time it was well China is going to continue to demand iron ore at the pace they've demanding for the last 10 years into perpetuity and China has uh, consumed more cement in the last 10 years than the US has consumed in the entire 20th century the, or the 19th century you know the the reason I mention these facts is that um, you know there are particular industries which are obviously hot at a particular point in time that are thought to revolutionize the world and tech has undoubtedly revolutionized the world but there's going to be pockets of 
of tech um, which are going to be phenomenally successful at the end of the day you still got to make money um, you know that's what it's all about so I think Spotify is trying to ride that crest of the technology wave um, you know uh, leveraging off things like Amazon Google Facebook which have been phenomenally successful but the bottom line of those companies is that they figured out how to turn a profit so I think the long-term test with, with Spotify is that 159 million active users 71 million paying users at the moment uh, the bottom line is that they've generated about 4 billion euros of revenue in the 2017 uh, during 2017 twice the level they generated two years prior to that but they still ran at about a 378 million euro loss so I think um, you know given that they're not getting the capital injection one one wonders you know um, how they're going to raise the cash to get this to a scalable level to get this to a profitable level uh, competing against the likes of uh, you know Apple music who is a seasoned corporate professional yeah. and uh, you know is generating mountain loads of and cash has a from big the balance sheet behind it. it correct has a big balance sheet behind it so can probably afford to run their music business at a loss um, you know hopefully uh, as it goes through a J curve and hopefully um, you know investing for long for profitability into the long term but it has a number of other business units that can carry through that period as you mentioned has massive balance sheets it has something like a hundred billion dollars in cash which can weather it through that period um, you know so I think the jury is still very much out on Spotify there'll undoubtedly be a lot of interest because tech is riding that crest at the, that, that wave at the moment um, but I think you've got to differentiate between uh, tech and tech and you've got to differentiate between who's making money who's not where's real cash flow going to come from how am I going to monetize these users if I decide to monetize these users are they just going to leave my platform because they can get it cheaper elsewhere um, you know and how long can you actually afford to carry the business or get it without having that equity capital injection because ultimately you know they're not looking to raise capital through this IPO yeah uh, and lots of these tech um, IPOs or listings uh, you find trading cheaper or well below the IPO price a year yeah. or two down the line uh, Spotify is something you'd rather let it list see where it settles and then get in if you're interested yeah no, no doubt about it you know I, you'd first want to see how do they run as a corporate entity um, you know these are exceptionally intelligent people um, you know who, who have these tech startups um, and but ultimately you know they, they battle to turn these into well-oiled well-run um, you know corporate machines that mm -hmm. that spit out profits so you know snapchat has been a horrible victim of that I mean yeah. that's just been a bloodbath since it's listed um, you know it's all cool that I can find an app that makes me put dog ears on my face <laughs> but I'm not gonna pay for that and as soon as people realize that um, all of a sudden it doesn't become the greatest investment case in the world so Spotify a very good idea giving people um, access to music in a very functional and, a v and, and you know uh, one an affordable two a functional and two a v three a very very convenient way you know I just download an app on my phone and I can listen to the music uh, but I've got to you, you know the price elasticity is going to become the next debate it is going to become a highly competitive market as we mentioned they're competing with Apple there they're mm -hmm. going to compete with a Google uh, with Google music um, you know with a number of other players in the, in, in that sphere so so, you know, in terms of gaining market share and continuously asking people to pay for that gain market share, the jury is still very much out on that. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned Chinese uh, use of cement. And I suppose looking at old economy stocks like cement makers, Lafarge Wholesome, yeah. they've posted a fourth quarter loss. They've got a five-year turnaround plan in place. They've stopped yeah. share, share buybacks. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it in South Africa with PPC and mm -hmm. our cement makers where it isn't easy. Um, and it looks like it's a global problem. 
Yeah, look, I mean, I think this is really a problem of, of, of capital allocation. I mean, ultimately, they're highly, highly cyclical businesses. And the issue with highly cyclical businesses globally is that they allocate capital at exactly the wrong time. Um, you know, they get themselves into trouble. Um, and as a result of that, they continuously need to go cap in hand to shareholders for rights offers, cap in hand to shareholders, um, you know, to underwrite new share issues because they've got to recapitalize the business because they allocate capital at exactly the wrong point. Now, um, you know, PPC obviously had a very dominant position in the South African cement market. Um, you know, the economic slowdown came through. It was thought to be the quality player, so it could weather the storm. But it, once again, you know, they're overcapitalizing their plants. They obviously had a number of issues on their African, uh, in the African execution plan, um, which didn't go according to plan. Um, but th that's exactly the point, looking to expand into Africa at exactly the wrong period of time. It sucked up a whole lot of cash. The SA business wasn't there to carry them through. Um, and as a result of that, they needed to have multiple rights issues since that point and destroyed value for shareholders. Yeah. Lafarge hasn't mean all that. It's, it's obviously they're operating on a global scale, um, you know, so they have had pockets of the business which we have been able to, you know, sort of carry them through. Uh, but at a point where, uh, you know, the, the, the shift of, of, of global growth, the global growth is shifting, the source of that global growth, you know. China, you know, there's ridiculous statue here about a new skyscraper coming up in China every five days or whatever the case is. Um, you know, that's been really the biggest driver of cement demand and the biggest tailwinds for these guys and they've allocated capital on the back of that demand going into perpetuity. Um, that obviously didn't happen and they've had to, uh, you know, the, 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 the results are clear for everybody to see. Still running at a loss. Um, you know, although I think they're at least going to benefit off the structural tailwinds of global economic growth picking up. Um, you know, obviously Trump and the trade war is not going to be the greatest news in the world for global economic growth. But if global economic growth, uh, you know, continues in this vein, um, you know, the five year turnaround strategy is actually to become profitable, to be generate strong free cash flow. Um, and, I su and I suppose as part of that five-year plan, there has to be a focus on more disciplined capital allocation or, you know, we're bound to repeat the same mistakes. Um, you know, the miners make it time and time again. And it seems that all cyclical commoditized companies make the same mistake time and time again of allocating money at the wrong point in the cycle. And why do they do it? Because, uh, you know, they push for a greater market share and, uh, you know, against their competitors and they get aggressive at exactly the wrong time because they're forced to do so to try and maintain market share um, and that's uh, uh, that's ultimately uh, you know the bugbear of, of, of a cyclical company they, they they're going to be forced to behave that way um, you know and you probably want to buy these things when they get excessively cheap uh, assuming you can avoid the, the, the complete bombs um, and that becomes a difficult thing to do yeah and um, WPP the world's biggest advertising group worst results since the yep. financial crisis yep. and it looks like amongst other things um, so it's, uh, it's, I think, Unilever and some of its big consumer goods clients yeah. have been cutting back advertising spend or they've been taking that advertising spend online to the likes of Google and Facebook. Well, that's exactly what's been happening. You know, we mentioned that, um, you know, technology has changed the world. And that's one of the very, very clear examples where you can clearly see exactly how technology has changed the world. You know, I think if you look at this space 15 years ago, Unilever's exact advantage was the amount that they spent on advertising and promotions. Mm -hmm. I mean, the number went something like, if had they spent nothing on advertising and promotions, their net profitability after tax would be double the number that it was. Uh, but that's exactly what gave them the high barriers to entry, the strong moats, and as a result of that, they essentially squeezed out the competition, and that's what maintained their return on equity. Fast forward the picture 15 years, and you know, I can place an advert on Google, or I can place an advert on Twitter, or any one of a number of social media accounts, 
accounts and it's significantly reduced the barriers to entry in terms of advertising and being in the consumer's face. I no longer have to do the TV adverts. I no longer have to be the print media adverts which are, ex- which are exorbitantly expensive. I can go online and do it a lot more cheaply and be a lot more effective with these, some of these uh, online platforms having something like one and a half billion active users. You know, if you look at the number of people utilizing Google on a, on, on a daily basis, that number is literally one and a half billion people. You yeah. see the number of active Facebook accounts, that's a billion active Facebook accounts and it's a fraction of the cost to advertise on these online platforms relative to conventional means which these advertising agencies haven't been able to keep up with. So the bottom line is that Unilever is saying, if we're no longer getting that bang for our buck in terms of protecting our return on equity, well, what's the point of laying out the capex and essentially halving our net profitability after tax uh, for something where we're not reaping the equivalent benefit that we used to 15 years ago? Yeah, so I suppose. Uh, advertising agencies have to adapt to rely and let's get some break. <laughs> we're going to a short break. When we come back, we take a look at Stanlib's global offshore offering. That's with Vemer Ferreira. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Nadir Token from 27.4. Joining us on the line to discuss Stanlib's global offshore offering is Vemer Ferreira. He's the COO of Stanlib's index investments business. Um, Vemer, thanks very much for joining us this evening. So five uh, ETFs being launched uh, over the course of this month, as well as five corresponding unit trusts. Why five at once? Yes, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me. I think... um I think why five at once? I think we want to bring out a range of offshore building blocks for a client or advisor to build a full portfolio that can represent global asset classes. So the thinking was, why do ETFs as well as unit trusts? I think the South African market is still very, very split in terms of you've got a certain type of client and a certain type of uh, advisor that uses unit trust on your traditional list platforms or directly with the Mancos. And then you've got your, your retail directed investor as well as your retail stockbroker that uses ETF. So we thought, why not, why not offer the building blocks and offer the access point both to UTs and ETFs to, to reach most or all of South African investors? Right. Any advantages for the retail investor, whether they go for the ETF or the unit trust? Is the pricing roughly the same? The, the pricing is roughly the same, and the pricing... Um, from an economical point of view, washes out on the product side. I guess the caution always is to investor. You need to, you need to decide on what type of investor are you. Are you an active investor that's going to trade a lot? Are you going to have a monthly debt order? Are you going to have once a year when you maybe get a bonus or a 13th check? Are you going to put money away? And depending on what type of investor you are, I think each vehicle and different type of platforms might be advantage to you. So, um, if you're a frequent trader platform with low brokerage, but a higher admin fee might be more favorable. But if you're a longer-term investor, you might want a higher brokerage, but a lower platform fee. So I always think from an investor point of view, you need to determine what type of investor you are. But if we come back to the product, the product is priced in a similar fashion. There's some small differences due to underlying cost of running products, but, but from a client experience, it should be, um, it should be the same. Mm. What, what do you think about Stanham's big bang approach to their global offering? 
Yeah, look, I mean, the building block approach makes sense, right? You've got to have the various asset classes which you get offshore. So the MSCI World Index Tracker, the Bond Tracker, the REIT Tracker, that I completely understand. You know, those are critical building blocks in any multi-asset class portfolio, diversified portfolio. I think the one that really catches my eye, though, is the technology ETF, which is kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, um, you know, because we mentioned the building block approach. Um, and maybe just one question from my side, um, in, in, in terms of, in in terms of the technology ETF, it clearly doesn't fit in in terms of the building block approach of the other funds. I mean, is this just uh, opportunistically listing this product because there has been a lot of interest in the tech space given um, the extent of the rally that we've seen um, over the course of 2016, 2017. Um, you know, we talk about the likes of Amazon, uh, you know, up 70, 80 percent. We're talking about uh, Apple up 50 percent. We're talking about uh, Google up uh, almost 100 percent. So a lot of these tech companies have done phenomenally well. Um, and obviously the brands which the retail investor is are most exposed to so is this really about giving south african investors access to a di diversified set of uh, global tech opportunities because i struggle to see how this would be used in a traditional uh, consultants building block approach to to a client yeah i think i think we we had a couple of things in mind when we when we picked the s&p 500 infotech and i think the first is we still see that visor the portfolio constructor um, the asset aggregator as having a role in this whole process of building a portfolio. And, and for the educated S&P 500 Infotech, given the profile, as you, as you just mentioned, has, I think, got a place in somewhere in, in a certain type of portfolio. I think, secondly, you touched on how prominent this sector globally has become, and we are of the opinion that it's going to keep growing. Um, I think if you go back to the early 2000s, tech was seen as this, boom and bust industry where either you make it or you go to zero. Whereas I think the industry has evolved quite a lot. And if you look at the companies that are, are, are in the top 10 holdings of it, you've got Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Alphabet, which is the Google companies, Intel, Visa. So those are mature companies within the tech space and also operate across a diversified subsector set of the infotech. So I think I think as a sector, it's been important. And I think the third point for us was, if you think about what big, percentage NASPAS makes up of our local market. If as an investor you like the tech sector, but you don't necessarily want to have a concentrated exposure to NASPAS in the terms of a single counter, this is a good addition to your portfolio to, to maybe still enjoy the, the benefits or the, the run that tech will have, but not having this, but this single equity um, um, holding which will dominate your portfolio from a risk point of view. I mean, the, the tech fund, Vemo, does, does look pretty concentrated, though, with, um, I mean, you mentioned those FANG stocks, Alphabet, um, Facebook, Alpha, uh, Alphabet, etc. I mean, th those are big holdings, 16% in Apple. Um, I was chatting to Nadir before the show, and he said, well, lots of people buy the, the industrial index here, where NASPERS forms an even bigger uh, part of that uh, index. So n no con concerns about concentration here? I think if you if you go into a broad market index like the top 40, once the stock gets to, as you rightfully pointed out, a NASPERS level now, or if you go back to the to the mid 2000s where Anglo and Billiton was, it's a concern. This 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 product is on a subsector of a broad country-based index, so we are already not saying this is representative of the full universe. This is a specialized sector, and I think 16%, and given the other counters having high weights as well. Doesn't, doesn't introduce a problem. But as Nadia rightfully pointed out, this 
this should inform a cornerstone from a, from a portfolio construction point of view as a replacement for a broad diversified equity holding. This this is a, has got a niche place within a portfolio or opportunistic exposure to a sector which we think has got good potential. So, I mean, while it might not be a building block for, for a, a, a diversified balanced fund, I suppose there will be a lot of interest in this tech fund. So, I mean, this is something that you're offering that's quite unique in the local market. How do you differentiate yourself with the other ETFs, though, such as the, the Rural Index Feeder Fund, the S&P 500 Feeder Fund, because a, a number of other ETF offerers do have those. How, how do you stand out with that? Yeah, I think, I think the notion of um, one index tracker is the same as the other index tracker still needs to be dispelled in South Africa because I think um, there's, always, there's always explicit costs and then there's implicit costs and then there's tracking error. And I think investors should be careful when considering an index fund that they consider all three of those. So what we've done on the tracking side is we are feeding into um, global best of class in index tracking. We're feeding into iShares funds. So we are quite comfortable on the tracking side and they've got a long-standing track record on all these products. The second one would be um, the explicit fee. So what is RT on? And normally when funds launch and they are small, all those fixed costs as a percentage cost becomes quite big. But what we've done in these funds is we've fixed our management fee and we've fixed our TR. To a, to a rate within the ETFs as well as the UT. So the client shouldn't experience a different explicit fee from day one to year five. It should be constant or going down if more, more funds come in. And then I think lastly, there's no hidden costs. So, so we, we're not disclosing a TR and then having a high TC or just disclosing just a portion explicitly and the rest comes out in the tracking. So I think from a transparency point of view, we're trying to be very transparent in how these things are put together. And then secondly, on the differentiation, I think you can come to Standup for one stop to build a fully developed global portfolio, which I don't think you can do at any other of the um, of the industry players. But I do think overall, I think adding more products to, as you rightfully pointed out, where MSCI World's already listed and the S&P 500's already listed, if you add more products, you drive efficiency in the market from a pricing point of view, from a performance point of view, and I think we, we think it's good overall for the ETF as well as the passive unit trust market in South Africa. Well, what do you think of the, of the pricing um, of the ETFs in particular? So they, their, their TERs range from 0.27% to 0.4%. I mean, does that sound compelling? Yeah, look, I mean, it, 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 is, it is a cheap way to access global, global investments. You know, ultimately, if, uh, if an average retail investor is looking to, a to access a global investment, you're talking about 1%, and more institutional investors for an active mandate, you're talking about sort of between 50 and 70 basis points, depending on uh, what fund we're talking about. So quite clearly, the pricing is very, very attractive, um, you know, relative to active mandates. But I think, uh, obviously, uh, where the South African market will evolve in time is that passive products overseas are even cheaper than this. I suppose there's a whole lot of added cost to make it available as a unit trust in South Africa that comes with additional regulation and additional costs. So, um, you know, that has to be built in. Uh, but if you look at some of these other global index trackers, like accessing these iShares products directly, um, you know, depending on the product you're talking about, you're talking about somewhere between 15 and 20 basis points for the product. So I think the pricing, given that it's structured as a South African unit trust, comes with additional regulation and comfort that investors has, is pretty much in line with what you'd expect from a passive manager. 
mandate, which is cheaper than ultimately an active mandate. Yeah. Vemir, um, just before we go, I mean, your global REIT index feeder fund and the, the global government bond index feeder fund both have the biggest exposures uh, to, to the United States. So, and that's at uh, kind of about 40%, just over 40% for both of those. A any concern about those, just given the, di the direction of US interest rates at the moment, or uh, are you looking through, through the cycle, obviously, as a longer term investor? Yeah, I think, Stephen, as a, as a product provider, we are trying to provide a product that's representative of the globe at the moment. And being passive, we're not trying to go and underweight U.S. before because we think the U.S. is going to go in a rate hiking um, cycle in 2018. And similar to the MSCI world, if you look at the, the, the representation in the equity market, they are 60% of the equity market. Um, as you rightfully pointed out, the, the government bond and the REITs at 40%. And that's purely a function of the market. And if the market evolves to um, in the bond like China emerging or Japan growing faster or in the equity market, Europe having a, um, have, have a run, those markets will be represented in the future index and we will track that index as it grows. So I, I think us trying to take a view or, or adding a bespoke nature to a passive product, which is... Um, do away with our philosophy of simple, transparent, low cost, uh, what you see is what you get. So I think, I think what we did here is try to offer you exposure to broad-based, global benchmark, best-in-class indices, and, and that's exactly what's, what's on the table here. Remember, we have to leave it for, there for now. Hopefully we'll chat to you again once those uh, ETFs are actually listed. Uh, Nadir, thank you very much to you as well. Yeah, pleasure. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks again to Nadir Token, Portfolio Manager at 27.4, Vermeer Ferreira, the CEO of Standards Index Investments Business. For their insights, many thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye. <laughs>